The timing that this is Ascension Sunday fits beautifully within our passage of Scripture today. And uh, you will recall we have been going through 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And this is the fourth part of a four-part sermon uh, that we have uh, preached through over these last uh, four or five weeks. Uh, And we're going to be finishing up that passage today. Uh, And as we have looked at this passage, we have seen some pretty grim, pretty sobering reminders of what it's going to be like for the world when the king comes back, when the return of the king is at hand, there's going to be an apostasy. There's going to be the rise of an antichrist. I think there's going to be a considerable amount of persecution of the real church of Jesus Christ. But the Apostle Paul, ever wanting to encourage both us and the Thessalonians, does not want to leave us there. Uh, He wants us to know that for those who love the Lord, those who are called according to purposes, those who've been adopted by the king are going to share in the glory of the king at his return. You'll recall in Acts chapter 1, as we looked at earlier for our Ascension Sunday, that the angels told the apostles, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go in to heaven. Jesus ascended. So as the great high priest, he has the ear of the Father. He makes intercession for us. He prays for us to the Father sitting on the throne next to him in a sense. And as the king, he sits there fully armed in his armor with his war charger at hand, waiting, just waiting to come back and establish his kingdom again on planet Earth. Let us go to Holy Scripture this morning and look at what will happen to us, the blessings that will occur for those who love the Lord at the return of the King. Let us go in prayer. Father, we do come before you and pray, God, that as we look at some of these, uh, these verses that may cause confusion and that uh, commentators are really over split over in terms of their understanding, help us to understand what it is that we are to understand. Help us to uh, take uh, to heart the thoughts that have been given to us in the prophetic word of Holy Scripture. And in faith, help us to be encouraged, God, uh, by the good news of the fulfillment of all the promises that are, yes, in Christ Jesus, being reestablished on planet Earth. And there, instead of having to see you with hearts of faith, we will see you with our eyes, we will bow our knees, And we will be experiencing everlasting peace and holiness and joy at the return of our king. Help us to see that today. A glimpse of the future to come and your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Please do turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you will find, because again, it's a little bit more confusing uh, this time. Because this is a one sermon in four uh, parts. Uh, but you'll see today as we, uh, we're going to focus particularly on verses uh, 13 through 17. Now, let me read those in their entirety, and then we'll look at the three different uh, components of this passage. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning For salvation through sanctification by the spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or mouth or by letter as from us. 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. We're going to look again at three components here. Uh, We're going to see here a praise for salvation in verses 13 through 14, a challenge to stand in verse 15, and a benediction for strength in verses 16 through 17. You might find your home group help uh, insert a benefit to you as we break down these various passages. But of course, this passage begins with one of those wonderful transition expressions from the Apostle Paul. He says here, but, so he's making a great contrast here between the, the, the terror, in a sense, that's to come on planet Earth through the apostasy, through the coming of Antichrist, and all of the mayhem and destruction and pain that's going to happen there, and all the judgment upon the devil and the Antichrist, to the blessings that are going to be experienced by those who await, who look forward to the coming, to the return of the king. It, there, there, it's amazing the differences in attitude between those who are rebelling against God at the return of the king, and those who are waiting for the return of king. We need to be people who are awaiting in anticipation, in hope for the return of the king. So he's making this transition here, but this is not going to happen to you. This is what always is going to happen. We should always give thanks. Rick Phillips says this, While there is great evil in the world that poses a deadly threat, there remain the strongest reasons for confidence when it comes to true believers in Christ Jesus. The the headlines should not depress you. The world really is going to hell in a handbasket, but you're not if you're a believer in Christ Jesus. The church will be glorified. God is going to make all things work together for good uh, for those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren. So so this is, notice this, this is really in a sense a command. He is saying we should, and the we here is probably he, Silas, and Timothy, but a general, the the leaders of the church, we should give thanks to God. So this is one of the great checks against a morose spirit, against a melancholy uh, mood. Is, is gratitude. We should give gratitude because we know that the future that is going to be for the world and the worldlings is not the future that is for Christ. Why is that? Because we are beloved by the Lord. Beloved by the Lord. The love of God is the basis for our hope and our escape for the coming judgment that is here. And, of course, Paul, again, is what he's doing is he is bringing out Old Testament language. This principle that Israel was beloved of the Lord, chosen by God, is throughout the principle of Deuteronomy. And even in uh, Paul, a great Benjaminite, actually seems to be quoting that, that Benjamin was loved by the Lord. You see that in Deuteronomy chapter 33. So he is applying these great truths that applied to Israel as a people, as a nation, as a family, to all of those who were in Christ Jesus. As Paul says three different times in Galatians, you as Christians are sons of Abraham. The promises that were given to Abraham are now being fulfilled in the church of Jesus Christ. We are beloved of the Lord. And we're going to expand on that a little bit more in just a few minutes as he repeats that, that idea. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now, this is a Reformed pastor slam dunk verse, right? God has chosen you. That is not confusing. That is not subject to interpretation. God has chosen you from the beginning 
for salvation. Now, if you're using the English Standard Version, that is normally a really good version to use. I think they've got it wrong in this particular text, and that's the opinion of most of the commentators I look. You might see in there, you are the first fruits. Instead of you've been chosen from the beginning, that idea that Thessalonica was one of the first places in Europe to receive the gospel. That's because one of the early manuscripts mentions thirst food. But that word is arche. It is the origins. It is the beginning. So you have been chosen from the beginning of salvation is the better translation as the New American Standard has it. So what does that mean? Well, he's talking about the effectual calling of a Christian. That that calling actually occurred in the mind of God from the beginning, from the creation. Now, we don't have just this verse. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, verse 7. That God chose us before the ages to our glory. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. He chose us before, in Him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us as adoption of sons through Christ Jesus to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Revelation 13, 8 says this, uh, that, that those were, who were saved, are, they were, that their names were written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb of Life who was slain. When Paul gives his testimony in Galatians chapter 1, he says, God, he who had set me apart from, uh, before I was born or from my mother's womb has called me by his grace. And, of course, we have that wonderful summary of the order salutis, the order of our salvation in Romans chapter 8. Whom he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is speaking of the irresistible grace of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit enters into someone and they will be, they will be saved. They will be justified. The redemption of Jesus Christ will be applied to them. And this is one reason why throughout Scripture... Another, a synonym for the word believer or for Christian is elect or chosen. Now, folks, people are offended by that, but it is thoroughly biblical. I mean, I've got all kinds of text here that talk about the elect or the chosen being Christians. I remember one time I was asked to do a, a parenting seminar at a large church in Columbia. And I kept, I got tired of the, of the, just saying the Christian parents, Christian parents, Christian parents. And I used the synonym elect in there, elect parents, uh, you know, and that, that, that was offensive enough for them not to let me teach that seminar because I used that language, that thoroughly biblical language. I wasn't trying to promote that. I was just trying to come up with a word other than Christian, which I'd already repeated about 25 times uh, in the particular material here. So these, are, these people are chosen. They have been called from the beginning for salvation. Salvation of the destruction of the world. Salvation of the intrigues of the Antichrist. Salvation of being uh, imprisoned by Satan. Salvation from our own sins. Salvation from the wrath of God that is to come. What is the end of the world is in some ways the beginning of our heavenly bliss. In the Lord of the Rings, uh, Pippin is in conversation with uh, Gandalf and uh, the city of Minas Tirith is about to be overrun by orcs. And, and then uh, Pippin mentions that this is the end, I guess. And then Gandalf says, end? No, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. It's just another path. It is a transitional path. You go from one room into the other. Now, that doesn't make it easy. But it really is, you're continuing the journey that you start here 
on earth when the Lord saves you and when he calls you. As one commentator says, the Bible teaches that from God's perspective, our salvation became, it became, began in eternity past when he chose us to be saved through Jesus Christ. So it's interesting. I mean, how could we have chosen him when the decision was made before the creation of the very world and before our very birth? It happened in the mind of God himself. Now, we don't recognize it. We don't realize it until we're filled with the Holy Spirit. But this upsets people. They think it's counterintuitive. They think it's bad for evangelism is the, the, the biggest concern I have. And a lot of people will say, well, okay, we'll see what he did. He didn't really chose individuals or choose individuals. He, he chose the principle of redemption, that there will be people out there that are redeemed. The problem is, he says here, brethren. He's talking about individuals. Paul was an individual who was a set aside before uh, his, uh, his mother birthed him. Another principle is, okay, well, what God does is he looks into the future and he sees who's going to choose him, so then he chooses them. Well, first of all, then God's not the one choosing. Second of all, there is no future for God. He lives in the eternal present. Nothing sneaks up on God. He doesn't have to look in the future and guess what's going to happen. But the biggest problem is that that's not what Scripture teaches. What Scripture teaches is, is it, the plain meaning of the text, and that's a hermeneutical principle. You look at the plain meaning, then you interpret Scripture by the Scripture, and there's plenty of Scripture, I've just read a bunch of them, is that God chose you. God chose you. The strange thing to me is that when we say that, people say, oh, you are so arrogant. You are so puffed up. What pride you have that you think you're one of the chosen. And my response is, which is more arrogant? That God chose me or that I chose God? I'm sorry, but we recognize the fact that there was nothing in us that was worthy of his grace. That's the principle of grace. He didn't look at me and say, oh, I'm going to love him or I'm going to end up being a pastor one day or I'm going to I'm going to end up uh, being one of those people who Moses lawn every week. And therefore, I'm a good citizen. So we're going to that's not what he did. God does see the future. He sees all the sin in the future. Out of his great love. This is his point. Beloved of God who chose you from the beginning. Out of his great love, we are chosen. We are saved. We are the brothers, sisters, and the beloved. And how does he do this? Through sanctification. Now, again, we, we, we often differentiate those points between salvation and sanctification. We tend to think of sanctification as that ongoing uh, growth and holiness that makes us more and more into the image of Christ as we continue on in our journey. And, and when we first become a Christian, we think it's going to be a graph sort of like this, you know. I probably shouldn't do I'm going to use this hand. Sort of like this. You know, we think we're just going to keep on going up. We're just going to go more. It's actually more like this, isn't it? And sometimes it's like this. Sometimes it's like this. But there, it is going there. Even through all that failure, God will you, help you to go to school in your sin and your failure as well to help you be more grateful, more for you, help you recognize grace more. But you are continually going up, even though you don't always see it. So we tend to think of that, but that's not really what Paul's application of that word sanctification here. What it is, is basically is, is he set us apart for service to himself. As it says in Ephesians, that you've been created for good works that God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. 
So, and, and he does this by the Spirit and faith in the truth, okay? So Paul has gone through verses 1 through 12 here talking about this idea of the spirit of lawlessness. And it's amazing when you, when you recognize that the Antichrist is going to come in under the spirit of lawlessness, this anti-law thing, and you read the headlines now, you can say that, that spirit is alive and well in America today. It seems like every good law that's on the books is being violated even by the government these days. We can understand this idea that the spirit of lawlessness is at hand. But then he's talking here that we are saved by spirit. There is a different spirit. This is why we need not fear Antichrist. This is why we need to have a holy confidence, a joy, an anticipation even of the return of Christ. It's because we have the spirit. And ain't nothing's going to compare or match the power of God's Holy Spirit in the individual Christian. John says uh, to his faithful believers there in Ephesus in 1 John chapter 4, And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Yeah, so all the false religions are truly false religions. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you're a Christian, the spirit that is within you is far greater than the spirit that moves nations. And that is, is a reason why we can have confidence. Because the love of God has poured out the spirit within us. So the distinguishing mark of the Christian is really that he is a possessor of God's Holy Spirit, whether or not he's got a fish on his mini van or not. It's a, is he a possessor of the Holy Spirit? That really what it, what it comes down to. And the, uh, the God's Spirit writes this, this, this uh, his, uh, has emphasized, I'm sorry, his uh, uh, inspired this holy writing that the Apostle Paul here, and what Keats goes on to say that our faith is in the truth. Uh, and the basis of our gospel. And, and this, is, this is the principle of, of the Spirit. The Spirit can't lie. God can't lie. So the Spirit can't lie. So God's word is, is true. So we embrace truth when the entire world is going after falsehood. We do that in the little ways. So in preparation, when the big way comes, the lying spirit of Antichrist, we can be ready. He says this is the reason why he called us through the gospel uh, and, and that we can gain the glory of Christ. Isn't that something we actually get to be partakers in the, in the glory of Christ? We would be like those like Moses whose face glowed because he was in the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God. So we are saved to the glory of Christ here, but we're saved from our sin and from the wrath of God to come. So we can have a holy confidence as we go through this life. You know, we, life is hard. It's very hard. But if you would just keep in mind who is behind you, who dwells in you, what the hope in the, uh, uh, of your future is, that, that difficulty actually ends up being in so many ways an ally to help you see that truth more and more and more. So notice again, Paul emphasizes and places this idea of the Trinitarian nature of God. Here you've got the, the members of the Trinity mentioned here in this text. This would be one of those places you might put a little triangle in your, in your Bible so you can defend the principle of the Trinity. God has chosen you by the Spirit that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a comfort that is. What a comfort that is. 
And if you are a Christian, you will not fail. You will not become apostate. You will not follow after, bow down and worship the Antichrist because you are his. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I have given them eternal life that they will not never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So that is what God does for us, right? Those are the wonderful, wonderful indicatives of Holy Scripture. But, but the question comes up, and Paul addresses this now. So what do we do about that? What's our responsibility in Christ? If those things are all true, and they certainly are, what do we do? Well, he goes on here with a challenge to stand in verse 15. So then, so then, so he's connecting the, the two together, brethren... Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from, is, uh, from us here. So, he, so here's the principle here. Is we're, not supposed to, we're not just pr to presumptively sit around with all this wonderful truth that we're Christians. Uh, we're actually to do something about it. We're to do something about it. That actually seems to be a problem in Thessalonica. The, you know, what's that principle? They got so worldly-minded, there were no heavenly-minded, uh, there were no worldly good. They had actually people that weren't working. They were, they were, they were kind of uh, uh, sponging off of the, the other members of the church, getting them to feed everything because, they, because either Christ has come back or they're just waiting for Christ's return here. No, you, we have work to do. And that work will continue until the day that we die or we are taken up into glory. And what does that work involve? Well, it stands firm. You are to stand firm. The image here is, is, is of a troop of soldiers who are standing up to an enemy onslaught. As anybody who's studied military tactics or has ever served in the military, you know that great loss occurs in battle uh, when, when uh, your side flees. When they don't have an organized retreat, when they just stop and run. That's actually where the great slaughter very often happens. And I kept thinking about this image. Of course, you know, this is the way I think. But of the, of the old, the, the, the venerable British squares. If you've ever studied the Battle of Waterloo or you've ever seen the, the movies on Waterloo. And there's a new one coming out with Joachim Felix as Napoleon. I hope we can go to it. <laughs> you know, I'm always scared to endorse movies from the pulpit. But, uh. But the, the, the British square, they basically would make a, a fort made of men, three strong, with their backs to one another. The, the, the French cavalry came in Waterloo. They came through all these squares, and that was the turning point of the Battle of Waterloo. Y'all, that's what we're supposed to do. We stand with our back towards one another. We have each other's back. That's why there's no place for infighting, for gossip, for slander within the church of Jesus Christ. We have each other's back. And if one falls, the other one picks up and then we replace them and we stand facing the enemy with our shots towards the enemy, not towards one another. That's why Paul emphasizes union, unity so much within the church of Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm. And what, how are we to stand firm? We are to hold to the traditions which you are taught. Now, we live in a culture that is so anti-tradition. Every day there's a new statue being torn down, right? Uh, they mock tradition. Uh, they laugh at tradition. They poke fun of tradition. There are some traditions that are bad traditions that should be done away with. That really was the principle of the Protestant Reformation, was it not? Taking a look at what traditions in the church are biblical, which ones are not, and getting rid of the non-traditional 
uh, the, the non-biblical traditions and keeping the biblical traditions. Well, obviously, he's talking here about biblical traditions. They were handed down from him. He's an apostle. He was used to write the word of God. They, when he taught, he taught with apostolic authority, just like the prophets of the Old Testament. The, uh, the apostles uh, were the ones who, who brought down, who handed these traditions down. So we need to be anti-bad tradition, but very pro-good tradition. How do you know if a tradition is good? Check Scripture. Check Scripture. The constitutional basis of this church is Holy Scripture, and in addition to that, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And if you will go to your copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith and look at the one in the back of the, uh, the hymn book, you're going to see verses all over those things because they're going back to the verses, the authority for that particular statement. It's a summary of what the verse is. That's the kind of traditions we want to seize hold of. Not just in our service of worship, but the way we run a church, the way the church is organized, the decisions that we make. Everything ought to be based upon these good traditions. This is what Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.3. Follow the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me. Jude chapter 3. Believers must hold fast to the faith which was once handed down to the saints. Of course, Jesus Christ started this. John chapter 8. If you continue my word, you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. So there is a set body of doctrinal truth that God expects you to know. Uh, part of, frankly, in some ways, at its worst, this anti-traditional movement in the, in the evangelical church, I'll be honest with you, some of it is just lazy. It's people don't want to go to the trouble to actually know doctrine, to read scripture, to read good books. They just want the experience. Everything's based upon sentimentality and emotion. Should we have some sentimentality? Absolutely. Should we have some emotion? Absolutely. But it's based upon tradition. You know, so the moment comes and goes, but the, the rock of the word of God stays forever. So we are to know these set body of truths. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Here's the other thing, too. We talked about the Holy Spirit within us is more powerful than the spirit that is to come, the spirit of Antichrist, the spirit that's in the world even now. But there's a way to train yourself for this battle to be able to stand firm. As John Stott says, the only way to resist false teaching is to cling to true teaching. You've got to know the real thing to be able to sense the false thing. And that's everybody's responsibility. It is primarily the elders of this church, their responsibility to be the shepherds that keep out the wolves. But the sheep need to be armed as well because you're not always in this building. You are often in other places. And there have been so many rises of cults and fringe organizations that, that you ought to be able to listen to a sermon and know that's not right, that's right, that kind of thing. We can have fellowship with these people. We cannot have fellowship with these people. One commentator says, we do not fight in order to win but because in Christ we have already won. The victory is already there. There's not a question on whether or not this thing is going to work out. There's not a question whether or not Satan's going to be defeated, the Antichrist is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, and that we're going to experience eternal joy. It's, it's just a matter of standing firm and waiting for that time to come. That great climactic moment, the last battle before the Black Gate of Mordor, Aragorn rallies the troops 
with this little speech. A day may come when the courage of men fails, when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship. But it is not this day. An hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down. But it is not this day. This day we fight. This day, folks, we fight. We fight to stand on these good traditions, to teach these traditions, and in our zeal to tell others about the Christ. Well, Paul can't, just can't help himself. He's, he, he closes out here. He gets so excited about thinking about the Lord that he, he, he kind of goes into a benediction, a blessing. So you think he's going to end 2 Thessalonians, but then he continues on in chapter 3 here. But then he makes this benediction for strength in verses 16 through 17. Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself... And God, our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. That is a great benediction, right? Well, if there's anything we need, we need strength in our hearts to be able to, to live out these great truths. Again, Paul is making a declarative statement. You know, in, in our tradition, you have to be an ordained minister to, to give a benediction uh, in the tradition of Aaron and the Aaronic benediction you have in the Old Testament, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That was a declarative. He's declaring a blessing upon you. This is what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's now saying the Lord may give you strength, which means he will give you strength and you will stand firm here. So he gives this profound, it's interesting, here's another theological point. He gives a de profound declaration of the deity of Christ in this one little statement. And this is important because one of the bad traditions, you've got uh, liberalism out there in the Protestant church. And they, the, the, basically the liberals say this idea that Jesus was equal to God, that comes later on in church history. The apostles didn't believe that, Jesus didn't teach that. Here's a, here's a great example, early in the church, this book was one of the earliest books in the New Testament. He is declaring the divinity of Christ. How does he do that? Well, first of all, he lists Jesus together with God. And he's praying with equal respect to both persons, okay? Notice this too. He puts Jesus' name before God the Father's name. That would be blasphemy if he didn't believe that they were both of God. He uses a compound subject, Christ and the Father, uh, but he uses a singular verb. Christ and the Father together are going to do this, showing the, the unity of the Godhead. And then, of course, he uses the divine title. We're so used to saying the word Lord, but Lord is uh, the word kurios. That is the translation of Yahweh from the Old Testament. That's what the Septuagint, that's the Septuagint uh, uh, translated Yahweh, God's sacred name. His covenantal name is Lord. So with all four of those, he is saying that Jesus, the, for God the Son, is equal to God the Father. Now notice there are the three things that God has given us in Christ. First of all, he has loved us. This reflects, go, goes back to verse 13 where he says he's loved us from the beginning. Listen to these verses, and these might be worth writing down, or I can send you some notes later on if you want to, if you'll email me. This, this really matters. For some of you, this is not a temptation, but for many of you, when things go badly, uh, you, are, you are prone. This happens especially with a melancholy type personality. People are prone to anxiety or depression anyway. You're, you're prone to blame God and question God's love for you. You know scripture, but in the mood at that moment, you're really down and you're thinking he's picking on you. That he's abusing you, perhaps even, instead of loving you as a child. So I want you to listen to these verses because that's a lie. 
Romans chapter 5, 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4, 9 through 10, by this the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, not that he looked to the future and saw that we loved God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the satisfaction, propitiation of our sin. 1 John 3, 1, see how great a love the father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. He loved us so much he adopted us into his family. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which we have loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Romans 8, 38 through 39. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, uh, uh, scholars seem to imply, you know, uh, over time, the church became corrupted with the veneration of Mary. Uh, this, the, the idea that you have these the, the, uh, 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 statues of Mary and that you are to pray through Mary as an intercessor instead of the one who's at the right hand of God the Father after the ascension. Uh, there's prayers made to Mary. There's Hail Marys and, and, and those kind of things. And a lot of people look at that and say, well, that's probably because of the influence of paganism. All gods had a, a cohort goddess, a paramour goddess or a wife goddess or something. So you, Jesus is our Lord. So he has to have a female deity to go along with him. They would deny this, de this deity, but it sure does look like praying to her when you're praying through her. Other people would say, well, a lot of it has to do with because the idea that the father, God, is the harsh, judgmental, mean-spirited type. So if you have a family like that and you can't get what you want for your father, you go through the soft, accommodating mother type. So we have to have a Mary because God is so grumpy. Y'all, every verse that I read talks about the love of the father. The love of the father. God the father loves you. Don't fall for that lie that God doesn't love. That only Christ loves or only Mary could be capable of that kind of love. Matter of fact, I love Zephaniah 317. He loves you so much, he just can't help singing about it. The Lord your God in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I don't, as much as I love my wife and my four children, I don't think I've ever sung over them. I don't think I've ever been so excited there, I just start breaking out in song, you know. I mean, that's really exciting, right? Have any of y'all done that? Probably not. I don't, it, it would be awkward for us. But this is what God does. He just, he is so delighted by you as his child. He just can't help but sing. He just can't help but sing. That's a good picture to keep in mind when you think God is picking on you. Then we see he's given us this love. He's given us eternal comfort. This idea isn't so much of sympathy, but of encouragement. He's going to sustain us so we can have the full experience of what it means to walk with him. Um, and we can have joy-filled lives. And then we have good hope by grace. Our hope is the good hope because it's founded upon the unbreakable promises of God, including his love. Our hope is not based on our own abilities. This is not us 
finishing the course. It is him carrying us very often over the finish line. And we need to remember these things. As Paul says in Romans 15, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that perseverance and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. And, of course, this good hope here is founded upon grace. It's not founded upon performance. We have such a performance mentality. I think especially in, in, a, in a free enterprise com- competitive system, we, we are so tuned in to performance we get discouraged because we think we just miss the mark so often. We, we poor, poorly perform so many times. The, your salvation is based upon the performance of Jesus Christ, not yourself. That's what this grace principle means here. So G.K. Beale says this, To avoid being filled with doubts about God's electing love, God's people must spend time in His Word and prayer both of which enable them to know him well and to do what pleases him. And, and this is also, we're going to lead to our comfort and the strength of our hearts. This is the reason why we can stand firm and that we are to perform every good work and word. So again, you, you, I don't know that you can overemphasize grace, but there, it, grace has some responsibilities. Once someone's saved by grace, we are to devote ourselves to service at that point in time. As Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, by not, but not by a faith that is alone. Listen, if your life doesn't change after you become born again, you're not born again. You're just not. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to ever be perfect. You're never going to be perfect. You're never going to reach total perfection. I mean, we even sin in our sleep, right? And it's just the way it is. The body of flesh, the, the temptations of the world, the, the, the creeping the temptations of, of Satan, we, we, we fail constantly. But we get back up and we keep pressing on in the strength of the Lord and we will not fall. As Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Again, we are celebrating Ascension Sunday. Our great king is at the right hand of God the Father. He has his ear. He makes intercession for us, just like that prayer that he had for Peter. I'll pray that your strength will not fail. But he's also ready to take off that priestly garment and put on his armor to be the king that is to return. The last benediction, as we look at Paul's benediction here, the last benediction that we will ever hear will come from Jesus Christ himself, as we see in Matthew chapter 25. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you, from the foundation of the world. Uh, if, you know, again, Samwise Gamgee is probably my favorite character in all the Lord of the Rings. And Sam thought Gandalf was dead. And then Sam, uh, you know, almost died there in the Mount of Doom. Uh, and he wakes up to find Gandalf sitting over him. And I love this text here because, again, Tolkien is reflecting the, the truth that we're going to realize when we get to heaven. Sam looks to Gandalf and says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. And he asked this question, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf responds, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he left. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he, Sam, listened, he thought, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter and the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. Folks, the day will come where everything that was true will come untrue at the return of the king. And we will laugh 
and have merriment for days that will never end. Praise be to God. Father, we do, we do long for your return. We pray that we be found faithful stewards who've been given the charge of this earth. I pray, God, that you would help us to overcome the, the, the temptations that just so easily entangle us, God. And to have a vision for that heaven to come and do what we can to prepare for the return of the King. As a church, as families, and as individuals. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.